So this morning I want to talk on the theme of death, dying, and the Dharma. I mentioned that I would talk about this last week, and I wanted to explore this theme grounded in my own experience from about two months ago when my um, father Simon died. And I trust that I'll be able to get through the morning. You can, if I'm having a problem, you can send me support <laughs> and energy. But um, it's such a powerful theme for our lives, our practice. It's often a, um, an area that we don't want to explore, certainly in our culture. Even with all the work done by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and others, there's still... In many, many parts of our culture, perhaps in many of our families, there's still a kind of taboo against uh, exploring the subject of of death and dying. The philosopher Heidegger said that we are unique beings because we can contemplate, contemplate the possibility of ourselves not existing. I don't know if he had talked with a lot of deer and cows, but, but he, was, he asserted that this is somehow unique for our species, that we can, we can reflect on the fact that we won't exist. And he took that to be very powerful and, and significant. So I want to explore a few themes related to death and dying. There is so much we could explore and talk about, and I'll probably, I'll probably just... Uh, Mention a few areas, and you know if we we'll see where we are because I'll be here next week as well, and we'll see whether we want to continue with that theme. And it's interesting that we're exploring this theme on the day of greatest darkness. It's the day of the solstice, and so I wanted to read a poem about going into the darkness, as we are tonight. That's. Uh, very beautiful poem by uh, Kathleen Rain. Interesting last name for today as well. (laughs) It's called Nocturne. Night comes, an angel stands measuring out the time of stars. Still are the winds and still the hours. It would be peace to lie still in the still hours at the angel's feet upon a star hung in a starry sky. But hearts another measure beat. Each body, wingless as it lies, sends out its butterfly of night with delicate wings and jeweled eyes. And some upon day's shores are cast and some in darkness lost, in waves beyond the world where float somewhere the islands of the blessed. Some upon day's shores are cast, and some in darkness lost, in waves beyond the world, where float somewhere the islands of the blessed. (coughs) And so, I have some pictures of my father here, from the last year or two, and this this is actually a funny, you can't see it too well, this is kind of a funny picture of one Halloween, he is dressed in a doctor's outfit, and I'm dressed in a, I don't know, 
kind of like a shaman or something with a rattle and a headband, and he's putting his stethoscope to check my heart. <laughs> so beautiful. I love the image. And so this time of year really, in, w- in a way, invites us to, as we were exploring last time, as we were um, mentioning, to explore darkness, explore mystery, explore the unknown, to give some time to, to reflect more deeply. An Eskimo poem says, and when we die at last, we really know very little about what happens then. <laughs> so, my father died at the age of 84, Simon Rothberg. He had been declining the last uh, year and a half, but things happened more quickly at the end than we thought. In fact, just eight days before he died, I was present uh, at the doctor's, and the doctor talked as if we maybe should make plans for hospice maybe many months down the road. So they, they didn't exactly know what was happening. Um, that was eight days before he died, and I was um, able to be present with him most of the last six days, most of the time, and almost all of the last uh, three days or so. And we had very uh, beautiful conditions, sort of optimal conditions. He died at home, was lucid, clear, not in much pain, and we were able to uh, communicate quite a bit. So I think that those conditions are uncommon, that so many people die in hospitals, I don't know if it's the majority of people who die alone, but it's a very significant number. It may be that a a large number of people die alone. It was also very wonderful that at the uh, moment of, the exact moment of death, the whole family was present. And that also doesn't happen so much. I've been told by people who work in hospice that it's as if some people want to die with their family around and some people don't. <laughs> and some people choose the moment to die when the others go to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, there's a, there is a lot of mystery here. And there, there's actually, I mean, it's interesting that I find myself, there's a, even a certain amount of humor and spaciousness even around this theme. That there, It's mysterious and there are things that uh, have a, a funny aspect. Um, and so he died on, uh, actually on Yom Kippur, which in the Jewish tradition is the holiest day of the year. And I was very, very touched by a friend of mine, a friend of mine who lives in Israel, went to a Hasidic teacher and brought the, the story of his life. And, and she, the Hasidic teacher, went into a kind of open trance and then just started talking and related back to my friend and said, you know, he, it was that the, in that tradition, Yom Kippur is very, very special. It's as it were, the gates are the widest open and that it was a, a tremendous gift both for himself and for, for many of us. So there were, there were a lot of blessings, you know, you know in, in, and a lot of gifts, which is something I'll talk about in a moment. So th- those are, the, those are the, some of the details of the process. A few themes from, from my own experience that I think relates to our experience as well and relates to how we might approach uh, death and dying. 
One is that uh, it was to be invited into this very wide range of experiences that anything intense like the situation at Thanksgiving or your situation with this person, very intense, has a great range of experiences. So sometimes there was just heartbreak, you know, and sadness and crying, you know, of course, of course that. And I think what we learned from our practice, in in a sense, we could see ourselves as in training to be skillful with a very wide range of human experiences. In fact, that the training of our practice is really to be more and more skillful, able to be with the entire range of experiences of, of a human being. And so in that sense, perhaps you two and perhaps myself, we're offered more difficult training experiences because we can learn from them. It stretches us. You know, they, that, uh, it's a very powerful way to look at our lives. I think it's the, the perspective that we get from our practice that we're invited to see everything as learning, not as a curse or a blessing, but everything as a potential for learning. It doesn't mean we don't do things. doesn't mean we don't act. doesn't mean we just say, here, I'm passive. Just hand me all these difficult experiences. <laughs> It's not, it's not that it's we, we respond, but the training is to learn to be responsive to the whole range of experiences. And, of course, being with death and dying is a powerful trainer. You know, and I, I almost wish that I had been, had some training when I was 20 years old to, to be with the dying process. And I think in our culture, we shield younger people often from, from that process. I don't believe that's wise that there, there's a way that, uh, I think I read, and there was a, right after my father died, there was an issue of a magazine I subscribed to called Yes, which is subtitled A Journal of Positive Futures. It's a very, very beautiful journal. And they had a whole issue on, on um, it was called Respecting Elders, Becoming Elders, Respecting Elders. And they talked about how in a, perhaps a culture which was more mature in relation to death and dying, young people would have the opportunities of their grandparents' death to be initiated further into, into the mysteries. So, so nonetheless, we learn to be present with, with, with death and dying, or for me that was the case. We learn to be present with this range of experiences. And it's difficult, you know, that heartbreak is not a great, you know, is not always an easy experience to hang out with for a sustained period of time, you know, for weeks and weeks. And yet it changes, but it's difficult, you know. Sometimes I felt as if my body was being torn apart. And I think, I think many of us know that experience, you know, and maybe, maybe almost all of us, that, you know, that it was, had its flows, its rhythms, its cycles, and that it was sometimes very hard on my body. You know, I, don't, I think people relate to death and dying very differently. And some, kind of, we take it into our bodies, and others relate you know, maybe more mm, mentally or emotionally. I think it's very, very different. And it was just a, a, a wide range of bodily experiences that, that I felt. Um, 
there were also periods at which the whole process seemed so natural, in which there wasn't so much heartbreak, but more a sense of, this is what happens when bodies come to their limits. There was more of a sense of it being a natural part of the whole process of whatever this is, life and death. That, and, and that was that could give a lot of spaciousness and equanimity, that there were, you know, that, mm, like the leaves falling in the uh, fall and winter, the leaves coming off, that, that uh, all bodies have their beginnings and ends. We don't like to contemplate that sometimes, but that was definitely sometimes my experience. And there was also, there were also times of just going into stillness, into something... You know, the heartbreak seemed to be strong for a while, about a day and a half before he died. And I should say that I was, I was sitting with him a lot of the last, almost all of the last days, um, a lot of the times by myself, because I wanted, I wanted to be there, I wanted to be present. And that my experience was that about a day and a half before he died, the quality of sadness and heartbreak shifted and there was something else that came more to the surface which was a kind of stillness and almost like entering the mystery more, entering the the mystery of the process. And I found myself um, just particularly in the last day, mm, although there there were times of crying and times of sadness, there was a lot of times of just fullness and presence and and the creativity of just being the creativity and wonder of just being present it's something that i've seen also in long meditation retreats where this sustained attention moment after moment opens up to something mysterious to something that's um, very creative i know from times of meditation just this continual attention. My mind just gets, like last spring I did about five or six weeks of loving-kindness practice. And it was very interesting time. My mind was just, you know, making up stuff. I felt like, you know, like all these meditation techniques came from sustained attention. You know, they weren't just ordained like the, you know, what, like the atomic table of elements, you know. Okay, here's this meditation technique that you should do. I think they all came out of people being creative just from paying attention for a long time. And I found myself doing that, you know, doing loving-kindness. I would, you know, start having rhythmic, melodic loving-kindness, you know, which wasn't in the instructions, not what the Buddha taught, but it's just what the mind does when it's, when it's uh, full. And I found that also with the dying process. I found my mind doing these practices almost that I later found out were core Tibetan practices, which is really interesting. <laughs> I was just paying attention, just being present, And I found myself almost like mm, opening up to what to me seemed like a kind of archetypal realm where the energies would would connect in a purifying way with the with my father. You know, and that was for for many, many hours in a row. And it was it was beautiful and inspiring, and it was something that was almost uh, at that time beyond a kind of heartbreak. So it's so it's this to me, it, it is a yet further trust in the, in the process of attention, in the process of just being aware, of staying with things, that it has its own power that we can tap into, its own 
rhythm and uh, wisdom and healing energy. So for us, the ability to be present with a wide range of experiences, I think, uniquely suits us, perhaps, to be with death and dying, to be present. Not everyone wants to be present with death and dying. I think our training perhaps makes us very, very uh, helpful in some of those situations. There are also ways in which being present with death and dying or being closer to it seems to, seems to open us up to be um, more deeply committed in our lives. You know, that I found that there were certain gifts of this process, that, that death and dying isn't all just difficult. It has these unexpected gifts that we may not have planned for but not, they nonetheless come. And again, it's, it's to see that the, their gifts and the difficult, just as their difficulties and our gifts, <laughs> you know, this, this um, sense of the interpenetration of these dimensions of our lives. Um, some of you remember the, may remember the story of the Buddha who grew up very much like a sheltered teenager in America. You know, the Buddha grew up in a palace, so the legend goes. I think actually there was a... Recent research has shown that this may be a myth, (laughs) but nonetheless, it's the story that we get. (laughs) Uh, The story story that we find in the suttas is the Buddha grew up in a palace. His father had received a... Mm, a kind of an oracular statement that he would either be a world ruler or a great spiritual teacher. And his father wanted him to be a world ruler. <laughs> and so he, he did all that he could to shield him from that which he thought would lead him to be a spiritual type. And so um, he was basically sheltered. He, there were no signs of death and dying and illness permitted near him, so the story goes. And it's said that at a period in his life, when he was well into his 20s, he went outside the walls of the palace and he encountered on successive days an old man, a person who was ill, a dying person, and then a spiritual renunciate, a kind of wandering yogi, and that these had an incredible impact on him. He realized that there was death, there was illness, there was loss, which he had not experienced before. It was as if he were a sheltered person who was shocked into reality. And in some ways, this um, being close to death can do that, can have the gifts of reminding us what's important. For the Buddha, it led him to his own quest for awakening. It led him on this seven-year search to really find out what was real. And I certainly felt from my own experience that this closeness to the process of death and dying deeply strengthened my own sense of what's important for me. 
what's important in my life? What do I really want to do? That, it, that it's like something that's difficult or deep. It can invite us to look more deeply, to come to say, how do I want to live my life? That's why it's often taken as a key meditation topic. You know, the Buddha said there are ten topics to reflect on which will lead you to deeper commitment. And reflection on, on uh, death is one of them. In the Tibetan tradition, they say, reflect on the certainty that you too will die as a way to lead to a certain kind of spiritual urgency. And it's, um, the Buddha also said, reflect often, death will take place. You know, I know sometimes uh, I've seen in groups, I think I've done it once or twice myself, sometimes in groups, people, uh, the, a teacher or her leader will ask, how many of you think you will die? <laughs> no one raises a hand. <laughs> and then slowly the hands will go up and people are kind of looking around cautiously, you know, and it's, 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 uh, it's invited as a reflection that can lead us to live more fully, paradoxically, to embrace death is to embrace life. That's really what the, what the Buddha is suggesting. A few more themes. One of, one of the powerful reflections that I came to was that in some sense, how we die is how we live. How we live is how we die. That there, there's a unity there. And I was, it was very, very uh, moving for me to reflect on my father had a great deal of equanimity in his dying. He was very peaceful. He was not struggling. And he was not struggling for a good part of his life despite quite a number of adversities. You know, and so I think he had adversities that I haven't come close to even touching. You know, he, he was in World War II. His plane crashed. He was badly injured. Those who were, were not in a hospital then went to another plane, his crew, and they went off on one mission and never came back. So there was, there was closeness, to, closeness to death. There was the adversity from growing up in a working class background and having to struggle in certain ways. There was adversity from um, losing his eyesight the last 35 years of his life. You know, probably due to bad ventilators doing chemistry experiments for the government. And he never really complained about this. You know, he struggled. He had several bouts with cancer over the last 27 years of his life, which he survived. In fact, he almost certainly died from the radiation given to heal the initial cancer, which was at a primitive state at that point and then later caused another cancer, which was treated but then came back. Almost certainly that was the cause. And he, in the midst of all that adversity, he rarely complained. There was a kind of equanimity. I remember asking him once, you don't complain about anything. <laughs> you don't complain about all these difficulties. He said, where would it take me? Where would it, what, where, would it, where would it go? 
And there was this ability to really focus on the positive, which is hard. You know, and I, you know, I think if we look closely, we could see certain struggles. And, you know, it's not, I don't want to make it look unrealistic or, or sort of um, imaginary. I think there, you know, there are ways that it was hard. But there was also a kind of lack of complaining and being with adversity, which, which I think is, is a deep, deep gift to me, to teaching about, teaching about equanimity and balance and how to be with things and, and still be very present. You know, there were, in the, last, uh, in the last days, I remember talking with him and I was, um, I told him during some of the time I was doing Tonglen practice, which is, a, which is a Tibetan practice where one breathes in difficulties and breathes out light and relaxation. And I remember I was telling him, well, I'm, this is what I'm doing all the time. And he smiled. <laughs> Oh, very nice. <laughs> this was like four or five days before he died. And in some of the last days also, he, he would continue. I was just, as some of you know, I just finished a book about two weeks ago. And he was, uh, he kept on asking. I told him I finished another chapter. And, and he would have, you know, he would be physically declining. He would just ask about the chapters. And I told him I just finished one. Oh, wonderful. You know, like that. So it was very, it was very inspiring. And I would tell him stories and he was he was really focused on on caring. I think it it is this way that how we die is linked with how we live. You know, he, I remember some of the last few days he would keep on saying every day he would say, "Take good care of yourself. Just take good care of yourself." We would tell stories of um, different kinds of stories of you know playing baseball when I was in fifth grade with the Cub Scouts, and, and um, I remember I told, him a, I told him a story of the chapter I was working on in this book, which is a chapter called Not Knowing But Keep Going, which is interesting to read to someone who's, who's dying. And I read him that story. It was a, it was a story about, uh, about Gandhi and how Gandhi, at his pivotal time in his life, violence all around, he didn't really know the best thing to do. And so he just hung out looking out at the river for six weeks while everyone was saying, do something, Gandhi, do something. And he just stayed there and contemplated the river and waited for knowledge to come. And I told him that story, not knowing but keep going, and a big smile. You know, so it was very, it was very powerful. And maybe the last theme I want to mention is this sense of how uh, death and dying is a kind of opening to mystery to this mystery of our lives, that the Buddha's teaching was often framed in terms of we open to the deathless. When the, when the Buddha was, was awakened and deciding whether to teach, he thought that no one would get this teaching, this teaching of letting go and being open. He said no one will get it. I'm not going to teach. I'm just going to hang out by myself. And it's said that the uh, Lord of the gods, Brahma, came down and beseeched him and said, there are some with but little dust over their eyes. They will be able to see. And, and then he said, please, open the doors to the deathless. And the teachings have often been framed as a kind of mystery that lets us navigate both life and death, and that there is something that seems deeper than this distinction. 
you know, call it consciousness or awareness or the deathless, but there seems to be there seems to be something there. There seems to be a way of going beyond that dichotomy and orienting our lives in that way. Shakespeare said something like, one who knows death and life, for that one there is no dying. If you penetrate deeply into death while one's alive, it dissolves in some way that dichotomy. So maybe I'll close by, um, again, just telling a story related to my father, which is that um, when I got uh, my doctorate about um, 20 years ago, he passed on a little name block which he had on his desk because he had, despite pretty humble um, upbringing, he went on to become a scientist. And he had this little name block which said Dr. Rothberg. <laughs> On it, and he passed it on to me when I got mine. And on, at the bottom, at the bottom, and he said some things. He said how I'd always appreciated this um, uh, this name block because he said it reminded him. And he wrote this on the bottom of the name block. It reminded him of his continuous pursuit of truth, knowledge, and wisdom. Mm. And I'm actually going to use that and have a little bench out in the courtyard. So when you see that, when you see the continuous pursuit of truth, knowledge, and wisdom, you can remember our conversation this morning. Thank you. So please, any questions or reflections of any kind? That is a deep subject, and um, mm-hmm. um, it's—I'll I'll just say two things because we could we could explore that for for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some very um, helpful reflections on that in some of Stephen Levine's books on death and dying, which would be in the bookstore. Because I, I, I remember a lot of discussions that he had. <laughs> He had whether he's one of the teachers who's most connected meditation and the practice we do with the exploration of death and dying. I think some of you know his most recent book is is called A Year to Live, and, and there've been groups on that, haven't there? Mm-hmm. Been groups uh, in the area for people who want to work with death and dying as as a kind of practice. Which again, it's um, it's counseled that we in some way make that a regular practice, not just when situations like this come up, but as a regular part of our uh, ongoing um, practice and looking more deeply. So, there, I don't think that there was an absolute moral judgment that this is always negative. I think in the, in the suttas, there actually are some, um, there are some texts which say that in certain fairly extreme situations it may be appropriate. So, so it's, there's not a complete moral prohibition in that sense. And, and I know that there was, um, there was a book, that, um, a fairly obscure book, uh, that is not even published in this country uh, by a British monk who, and I could get the name and bring it back next time if you want to follow this, but it's a, it was a book 
He was one of the early British monks who uh, went to practice in, I believe, Thailand, in right after World War II, and he eventually had a very horrible disease occur to him while he was in Thailand, which was fatal and quickly fatal. And he spent a lot of time reflecting on suicide in those conditions and summoned a lot of the texts. And, and uh, again, I don't, I don't think it'd be in the bookstore because I think it was just published in Thailand and in England. But there, there are a lot of materials there uh, that sort of collect all those ideas on suicide. But the main, for, for, that was an unusual situation. For most of the situation, it would be to really reflect on intention and motivation and to see if there are alternatives, because typically suicide is, is, occurs because uh, the pain is very great and the horizons get narrowed. That, you know, if I could be very brief on it, you know, that, that horizons get tremendously narrowed to where all of the alternatives seem unbearable. That, that's the, kind of the inner psychology of suicide. And so there's a lot of work that can be done. And maybe, maybe we each know that kind of mind state where everything gets really constricted. I mean, I think we all have versions of that. Things get really, really constricted. We can't see the big picture. And only, the only alternatives are unbearable, and the pain is great. And those are the actual conditions of suicide. And so it's almost always possible to work with that situation to give ways to work with pain and ways to see more broadly. So it's, I think it's, um, you know, I don't know if people here work with, uh, work with people in danger of suicide or any, maybe there are people who have some experience in that, but that, that's my um, experience from having uh, talked with people who, who uh, work with people with, who are suicidal. And so it would be usually to um, find ways to be with pain and to open up the mind more. Please. Um, I can reflect upon and um, actually see some beauty in the dark with a natural life progression. Mm-hmm. You talk about your father. I think I'm so lucky that my parents are elderly and I can reflect on their life. But it's so much more difficult when it's you or your, you know, your children or mm-hmm. it seems yeah. And I think that's what I think this struggling Yeah. Yeah, that it's um it doesn't seem like this is just the end of a natural cycle. I think yeah. cycles, especially when you you know, you're a naturalist seems so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. But cutting down a tree seems tragic. Yeah. Yeah. And how to how to work with that situation? Yeah. Um. <coughs> but it's interesting with the darkness because today, even you were saying, what, what were you seeing? And it was, um, you know, if you want to reflect upon it, and I'm a neophyte, but I um, saw a lot of beautiful dark, bright indigo blue. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just felt so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. To 
Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Please. I have a very different perspective on on death than the dialogue that's been going on. Mm. I have one clinical death, and um, and been on the other side and Mm -hmm. been resuscitated and and came back. Mm -hmm. And um, I experienced no light. Mm -hmm. I experienced something very different that was uh, very frightening, Mm -hmm. um, but very very mind-expanding also. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I can also understand what you said about your father and how at times you felt you were tore apart mm-hmm. and what this what this means to me mm-hmm. and um, part of this is that we are so cellular and connected with our family our fathers mm-hmm. grandfathers and this is all passed down and when a person that we love die um, part there is part of us that dies also mm-hmm. and this is a part that's torn out of us mm-hmm. and to let go of that is very painful mm-hmm. And um, and this is these feelings that you said you mm. you felt. This is how I perceive them. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched them resuscitate me from above, and since that experience, and I realized I was young when this happened. Mm. And um, since that experience, um, I have more of a connection with with the dead, mm. and so I do have communication on that level. Mm-hmm. And the experiences are very different for everyone, mm-hmm. depending on what we believe at the time of our death. Mm. And um, that's, that's basically. Mm. Tell me your name again. My name is John. John, Th- thank you so much, John. And um, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot in what you said, and part of what it made me reflect on is that, uh, like you were saying, in terms of that um, connection. Part of what I experience and part of, I think, what we experience um, in being close to death and dying, I certainly experienced myself as dying right there. It was not, you know, that, that was part of the experience. It, it you know, there was, um, sometimes it was visual, and some, but there was some way in which I was, um, in a way, going through my own death. And... I have to say that the um, I can feel palpably this was the closest I've personally been to death and dying over a sustained time. I mean, I've been with friends and people I know who have been dying, but not for 10 or 15 hours a day over many days. And my own experience is that uh, some major... Uh, layers of um, fear or aversion dropped away from being close to the process. It's something about the, I was talking about the gifts, you know, that there was some, something got so shook up that something different came out the other end, you know, and it's, uh, and there, there's, there's a lot of mystery, isn't there? It's like that Eskimo poem. We don't really know so much. <laughs> Please. I, I think that um, uh, the mystery only happens after a period of, of after we die, because there are many people who stay with their bodies, stay around their families, stay around their, their bodies for many, many years. Time is a man-made concept. Mm-hmm. And so it can be 100, 200, 300 years 
but they'll remain around their bodies. Mm -hmm. Some go away. And the mystery is, for me, mm -hmm. because I did come back, is what happens after that. Mm -hmm. that's, that's where the mystery is. But while we're around, we're still connected and we're still within that, mm -hmm. that experience of life. Yeah, there's tremendous, there's tremendous mystery. I was thinking in, in Jewish tradition, it said that as long as one remembers the dead, they're not really dead in some sense. That there's, and it just is, it's, it can lead to this beautiful inquiry. You know, I found myself the day after my father died walking by the river in Petaluma with a friend and saying, okay, what died? Something died. There was death. But are his thoughts gone? Not exactly. Is his body gone? Well, in a way, I represent his body. <laughs> you know, are his emotions gone? Well, I can remember them, and, and so it can lead to this very deep inquiry. What is what is this? In fact, who are we? What is what is the person? What's really <clears throat> what lives? What dies? And it can that can that can open up our our minds to be be attentive. Maybe the last last I comment. The, yeah. I think one of the great losses in the mystery is, is that someone very close to you takes your history that they have, your very special history that mm -hmm. they know only their way, and they feed it back to you, mm -hmm. and that sort of goes off into an archive of some kind that mm -hmm. you can only bring back in your memory. Mm -hmm. But to me, when someone very close like that, my brother, for instance, mm -hmm. I mean, he knew, I always want to call him up immediately to ask mm -hmm. him a question about something. Mm -hmm. but, and he, only he has that, and I can't mm -hmm. get it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Can you still call him up? <laughs> well, I, I talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> I know he gets me parking spaces. <laughs> <laughs> Now we're getting. No. <laughs> okay. Now the real reason to go more deeply into this. <laughs> so, uh, well, that. I would just vote that we can. You ask about continuing. Yeah. This. So I, I think this is. A, I would have that would have my vote if would you, it works for you. Okay. Would people like to continue with this theme? Yes. Okay. And maybe maybe with a, a little more group exploration. Whatever. We'll see. Okay, so let's just sit quietly to finish for a minute or two. Was that was that fairly much a consensus? How many? Okay. Thank okay. you. So sitting quietly and letting be present. Whatever may have been helpful, or energizing from the morning, perhaps not even related to the theme, but just something that happened in the meditation or something that occurred to you. But it also may be related to our exploration of death and dying. Is there an insight, a question, or an intention that comes out of the morning? 
let us, in closing, um, offer what's been valuable from the morning, the fruits of our time together, the fruits of our practice. Let us offer it outward beyond these halls, touching all of us, but going beyond to the various beings, all of whom will, all of whom live and die, and offering these, the fruits of our practice for their learning, for their awakening, for their healing, for their entering more fully this mystery of life and death. <laughs> 